You're listening to the Informal Bible Study, a casual and applicational look at the Scriptures. I'm John Stonge, and it's great to have you with us today. In just a few moments, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 18, and we'll be asking the question, will God accept me even if I'm not that good? But before we take a look at these things, just a couple quick things I wanted to share with you. First off, I just want to invite you to our website, which is desirejesus.com. And on our website, you'll find our blog, you'll find links to both of our podcasts. You'll also find our bookstore and the resources that we have there, including the most recent book that I've released called Who is God? I'd encourage you to check that out. Check out the Desire Jesus one-year devotional as well. I hope that you'll enjoy them both. But they're both available in our bookstore, and you'll also find a link at desirejesus.com to sign up for our weekly newsletter. And what I do with that is each Tuesday I send out a word of encouragement and a brief devotional thought, and I send that out usually Tuesday afternoons, and uh, it's just my joy to be able to send that out to your inbox. I also include anything new that might be available on our website. I put some links to that at the bottom of the email. So if you want to be on our weekly email list, just go to desirejesus.com. Jesus.com, and you'll see the link for the newsletter, and you can sign up for it right there. Now, as I mentioned just a moment ago, today we're in Romans chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 18. And by the way, this is a sometimes hotly debated portion of Scripture, but we're not really going to take a controversial approach to it today, more of an evangelistic approach, I would say. But we're asking the question, will God accept me even if I'm not that good. So let's take a look at that together. We're continuing our look at the book of Romans, and today we're in Romans chapter 9. So if you turn there with me, in Romans chapter 9, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 18, and uh, I'll mention this even before we dig into this portion of Scripture today. Romans chapter 9 is uh, one of those portions of Scripture that um, well-meaning Christians tend to choose sides on. So it's one of those portions of Scripture that when you look at, some people read it one way and some people read it another way. And it's not actually going to be my goal today as we look at this portion of Scripture um, to, to dig into it from that perspective. But one of the things that I appreciate about Romans chapter 9 is that if you're a believer in Christ already, so if you have genuine faith in Jesus Christ, this is one of those portions of Scripture that reminds you about what God was doing behind the scenes to bring you to the point where you actually recognized your need for salvation. And if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ yet, this is one of those portions of Scripture that shows you the great benefit and the great mercy of God as He pleads with you to receive the gift of salvation. So this is one of those portions of God's Word that either reminds us of uh, wonderful things that our hearts should be meditating on every day, or it's a portion of Scripture that shows us things that we should have uh, you know, had rise to the level of our attention, but maybe it hasn't as of yet. So Romans chapter 9, we're going to start with verse 1, and as we look at this, we're going to be asking the question, the overall question, will God accept me even if I'm not that good? So look at what it says in, in Romans chapter 9, starting with verse 1. It says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return. And Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, 
though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege that it is to be studying the, the book of Romans uh, in its totality, but also to be able to look at this particular portion of the book of Romans today. And Father, it's obviously the desire of, of those of us who, who, who think of ourselves as your children to know that we are accepted by you. But Lord, when we look at this portion of Scripture, you give us some of the background of what's taking place. You give us a picture of your calling on those that you've redeemed. And you give us a picture of the mercy that you show to those that you've redeemed. And Lord, obviously we don't deserve these things, but we're grateful that you supply these things as an expression of your perfect nature. So Father, we pray that as we look at this portion of your word, that you'd help us to understand it, that you'd help us to grow from it, and that we would be either encouraged to, to be reminded of the salvation that we already have, or that you would open up our eyes to understand our need for salvation through faith in your Son. And we commit this time to you now, Lord, and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, do, you ever, do you ever have to move when you were growing up? You know, nod your head if you were someone that had to move at least once growing up. I moved several times, by the way, growing up. Uh, my wife had the privilege of living in one spot, same house, her, her whole growing up years. So it was a very different experience that uh, the two of us had growing up. But one of the most challenging years of my growing up experience was when my family moved to a new community and I had to change schools right before fourth grade. And so we moved. Fourth grade started, and I had to say goodbye to every friend I had ever made. I didn't live near them any longer, uh, and I had to make all new friends. Every single person I met was a new friend. And um, I often wondered in that context what it was going to take to be accepted by the new people that I met. And I remember at the time thinking to myself, okay, you know, uh, what do they care about here? What are the things that, that some of the guys are into here? Maybe I should get into some of that stuff. And I noticed in, in the new community that I, that I moved to that everybody seemed to be into basketball there. And I was like, all right, well, looks like I'm into basketball. And then at recess, it seemed like everybody was into fighting. And so it's like, I want to live through this. So apparently now I'm into fighting. And it's kind of like I've, I noticed that if you win a few of those, then you're accepted. So it's like, I, I guess I got to get good at this. And so I would do push-ups all the time at home and I would try and exercise and think, all right, recess is coming, you know? And I'd go to the basketball court that was behind my house and uh, I had no one, no one to play with at, at first. And I, I'd just go there and I would just shoot hoops and I'd shoot hoops and shoot hoops. And I'd think, one of these things, either, either through winning fights or being good at basketball, is going to earn me a few friends, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes because I would like friends, and I don't know anyone here, and I'm starting fresh. And it was very challenging. And I think really, regardless of whether you're in fourth grade or whether you're, you're 40 years old or whether you're 80 years old, I think that each of us has a desire within our hearts to be accepted by other people. But when you analyze the people that you know in different spheres of your life, there are very few people that we have the privilege to meet over the course of our life that actually show us a form of what we would say is unconditional acceptance. Many of the relationships that I've developed through the years, many of the relationships that you've developed through the years, probably have some level of conditional 
acceptance that goes along with that. Meaning, there are many people in this world that love you right up to the point where you stop giving them something or stop doing something for them. And so as soon as that changes, they stop loving you. And I think all of us have probably experienced that with certain relationships. But thankfully, when we look at what Scripture tells us about the acceptance of God, that's not how the acceptance of God works. The acceptance of God isn't something that's conditional and earned. His acceptance of you, His acceptance of me, isn't linked to what we can give Him, and it's not linked to what we can do for Him. Although, because so many of the relationships that we deal with on this earth actually come down to what we can either do for someone or give them, that sometimes we get confused about what God's perspective happens to be. And sometimes it can be very easy for us to start looking at our relationship with God and begin thinking that He will only accept me if I can do something for Him or if I can give something to Him. Because so many of the other relationships that we've had over the course of our lives seem to fall into those categories. But when you look at what Scripture tells us, we're told that the acceptance that God, that God shows to His children, you know, when He accepts you into His family, it's not tied to what you did, and it's not tied to what you gave. It's tied to what He did on your behalf. And it's tied to what He gave you through His Son, Jesus Christ. So it's the opposite of how many human, conditionally acceptant relationships tend to work. So, here's a question that I think comes to mind as we look at this portion of Scripture. And the question is this, will God accept me even if I'm not that good? Because even though we've just talked about the fact that God's acceptance doesn't work like human acceptance... I think that's still a question we wrestle with, even if that's a a, a piece of data or a fact that we might know theologically, I think we still wrestle with this. Especially if you've had a bad stretch throughout the course of, of a season of your life. Think, will God accept me even if I'm not that good? Well, I think this portion of Scripture that we're looking at today addresses that very question. And I want to reread some of the portions that we just read a moment ago. So let me reread the first five verses here. Because it sets up what we're talking about here. And one of the things that it shows us in these first five verses is that the love of Christ is reflected in sacrificial compassion. Look at what it says in these verses. It says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. So you have the Apostle Paul here speaking this to the church at Rome. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and uneasing or unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So let's pause there for a second. So this is written down by the Apostle Paul as the Holy Spirit gives him the inspiration to pen these things down. And the Apostle Paul had had a very impressive pedigree. When you look at his background, when you look at his life, he had a very impressive background. In fact, there were some people that he interacted with regularly that believed that the kind of pedigree that the Apostle Paul had in regard to his heritage would just about be good enough to be accepted by God, to receive that full acceptance that our hearts long for from God. So in the natural sense, look at Paul's background, look at his pedigree. He was an Israelite, right? And all these things that he's describing here in these verses that were blessings and privileges that God had historically given to the people of Israel, these were things that he would look at and he would say, hey, this is my heritage. This is the heritage of those who came before me. This is the heritage of my life. This is the, the, the group of people that I identify with. These are the people that I belong to. This is my family. And he lists the covenants and the promises and blessings and all sorts of things that the Lord had, had blessed the people of Israel with. And he could look at that and say, hey, that's the pedigree that I come from. That's my heritage. That's my background. And in a natural sense, yeah, he'd be right. That's his, that's his pedigree. That's where he came from. That's a group of people he was raised among. And just as he certainly would have appreciated 
his heritage. He also appreciated and loved those who claimed the same heritage. He loved his Jewish brothers and sisters. He loved them. And so I'm sure that it broke Paul's heart when he would travel to different areas. And if you look at in the book of Acts, and you see the details of his traveling, one of the things that Paul would frequently do when he would go to a new area is he would find a synagogue. And when he would go into that synagogue, he would, he would proclaim and preach the message of the gospel. He would tell his brothers, uh, his Jewish brothers, and his, uh, his, you know, his Jewish family gathered, to ga- gathered together there in the synagogues about the fact that Christ was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. He would point that out. He would stress that. He would communicate the gospel clearly. And I believe that it broke his heart when, in many cases, as he would do that, his teaching would be rejected. Christ would be rejected. Christ would be dismissed. People would say, you know, effectively, we're not interested in hearing this any longer. Now, there were some people that did respond to the message of the gospel, but there were also plenty of people that that strongly and forcefully opposed Paul sharing that message. So I imagine that broke his heart. And in fact, Paul was so troubled by their rejection, you could see the depth of how it troubled him when we look at the verses that we just read together. He was so troubled by their rejection of Christ that he would often think about the eternal fate that awaited them. So even though they had seen God's glory demonstrated in many miraculous ways, including the fact that Jesus Christ had come to them in the flesh, and um, even though they had been the beneficiaries of divinely orchestrated covenants and were the ones to whom Christ first offered Himself as Lord and Savior and Messiah, Paul had no illusions about the fact that those who rejected Christ's offer of salvation, those who rejected Christ's offer of forgiveness, would one day experience the devastating wrath of God for all eternity. And it troubled him to think about these things. I remember um, right around the time that my wife and I got married, so this had been right before we got married and then a little bit after we got married, and we started talking about the fact that we wanted to have children. And, and I remember, I think we had been married for about a year, and I was just thinking the one day about the fact that, all right, you know, at some point here, um, we'd like to have children. I was praying about these kids that I had never met yet. And uh, I remember praying one afternoon, Lord, you know I would love to have children. You know that I would love to be a dad and my wife would love to be a mother. But please don't give me any children if a single one of them isn't going to trust in your son. I remember praying, Lord, please don't give me any children if there's even a remote possibility of any of them not ending up in your kingdom for all eternity. I don't know if that seems like a weird thing to pray, but I remember praying that. I I thought I would rather, as much as I wanted to have children, which was extremely, I also thought, like, I I can't bear the thought of having children and then not having the assurance that they know you or will come to know you at some point in their life. Now, granted, that's up to God. That's not up to me, these details, right? But I'm just being honest to you, uh, honest with you and telling you that's something I prayed. That as much as I wanted kids, I just couldn't bear the thought that they wouldn't know the Lord. At some point, even if it's in their dying breath, right? Just, Lord, at some point, rescue those kids. If you give me kids, please, at some point, rescue them. And I, again, I think that's probably a little bit of a funny thing to pray about, but I don't think it's super unreasonable to pray about. And let me uh, give you a little bit of a, like a moral dilemma here that I want you to wrestle with for a second in light of what Paul says here in this scripture. What if God told you, if you prayed something like that to God, and what if he told you in response to that, okay, I will save your children, but in return, you have to agree to spend an eternity in hell on their behalf. Would you accept that deal? Isn't that a weird thing to even like wrestle with or think about in our mind? Because God doesn't make bargains like that, but I'm just saying hypothetically, what if He did? What if He said, all right, here's the deal. I'll save them, but you have to go to hell on their behalf. Would you agree to a bargain like that? 
Because like, when I think about the course of my life and when I think about what gives me hope in every circumstance, I think about the fact that every trial I experience is momentary. Every difficulty I experience, it's just for a season. The Lord has good things in store for me. The Lord has good things in store for all those He calls His children. I live with that hope every day, and it brings comfort to my heart. So what would life look like if that was taken away? And then you look at what the Apostle Paul says in this portion of Scripture. What did he specifically say? What was, he, what was the desire of his heart that was being communicated here? Paul was saying here that he, was, that he wished that on behalf of his kinsmen, who as of yet were rejecting Christ, he said that he wished he could be cut off for, from Christ on their behalf. That he wished that he could take what was waiting for them, if in, some, if in so doing, it would result in them being saved. You know, that's, that's what Paul was wrestling with here. This is what he was thinking about. You know, this is the kind of sacrificial compassion that the Lord had shown Paul and now was fostering in Paul's heart. Where he's saying, I'd actually be willing to be cut off from Christ if in so doing that would result in my kinsmen coming to know Christ. Now he knows in saying this, is, this isn't something that's going to happen, but he's also saying if it was an option that God gave him, he would have taken that option. Isn't that a fascinating thing to wrestle with? Wouldn't that be a hard thing to agree to if the Lord said, all right, here, here, I, let, let me make it reality. You know, here's the option. Would you take it? It's a hard thing to wrestle with. Especially before you know the kids, right? And then it's and here in, in this context here, imagine this. This is a group of people that opposed Paul's message, chased him out of towns, didn't like him. Some even plotted or arranged for his his death. You know, they, they wanted to see him dead, and yet he's saying, I'd be willing to be eternally cut off from Christ if in so doing my kinsmen could come to know Christ. That's sacrificial compassion. I think Christ inspires that in our hearts. And that's what He was doing in Paul's life. Only Jesus could foster that kind of sacrificial compassion between brothers. That is not a natural way to react to another person. So think about your own life for just a second here again. Have you noticed Christ fostering that level of sacrificial compassion in your heart? You notice that other-centered perspective, that other-centered desire where you're willing to, to either be hurt or take risks that can result in you getting hurt for the sake of somebody else and their walk with Christ. If you're noticing that kind of willingness, if you're noticing that kind of progression, I believe that's actually evidence of spiritual maturity. I think that that's evidence of the fact that you've been walking with Christ and you recognize how valuable it is to know Christ, and He's creating a desire within you that mirrors His heart. Because what did Christ come to this earth to do? He came to seek and save those who were lost, and He suffered on our behalf in that process of seeking and saving those who were lost. And He invites us to come follow Him. And He gives us a compassion that mirrors His own sacrificial compassion toward us. So you can see that as Paul sets up the things that he's talking about in these verses, that this is the type of thing that Christ had been developing in Paul's own heart. But now Paul elaborates a little bit further on the concept of family. He begins to demonstrate that our spiritual birth through Christ, it matters much more than our natural lineage. Look at what he says here in verse 6 down to verse 8. He says, But it is not as though the Word of God had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. You ever done a little research into your family history? You ever look back into that? I've, I've mentioned a few things. Uh, uh, oh, I guess a few months ago about some of the family research that one of my uncles had done, and um, one of the things that he gave me a while back uh, was something related to my great great grandfather. My great great grandfather was a man named Christian Carl Stange, and he was the he and his wife Anna 
came to the United States from Germany, and so that's why the Stange family lives here in uh, the United States. Specifically, they moved from Germany to Scranton, Pennsylvania, and uh, he worked there and he served there. My understanding from some of the things that I've read about him is that he was musical, and he was actually part of, you know, so you picture in that era, you know, you don't have, most people don't have uh, the ability to just listen to recorded music or anything like that, and so if you want to listen to music, it's got to be live, right? And so he and a, a group of other people, they, they formed a band, and uh, they would play music in the area, and uh, they did other things. But I also get the impression he was a very, he was a, a kind man, a talented man, but also uh, a serious man. And I also get the impression he was a very others-centered man. And one of the things that's given me that uh, impression of him was something that my uncle sent me maybe a year or two ago that had his picture. And it wasn't his obituary, but it was something that was written after he died. There was actually something in the newspaper in Scranton all about the funeral. So it wasn't just a notice that he had died. It was just telling you about all the different people that wanted to come and pay their respects at the funeral, and there was a line in there that I'm paraphrasing, I'm probably not quoting it exactly, but it referenced him as being one of Scranton's most prominent men. One of the most prominent men in Scranton, Pennsylvania, Christian Stange. And I thought, wow, and it made me want to know more about him because I don't know that much about him, but I thought, why would the newspaper refer to him with this this statement of prominence? Why would they actually do a follow-up report on the funeral itself, not just a notice of his passing, but then a write-up about all the different people that came, the hundreds of people that wanted to come and pay their respects, and the people that that spoke and shared, and and then notice, you know, this sort of thing about him. And I thought, you know, a a part of me was impressed with him, and I thought, wow, I, I think that's pretty cool that 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 guy is in my family history. Even though I know very little about him, I just know a few things. I know the fact that I live here in the United States has a lot to do with his willingness to travel across the ocean and live here in the United States and raise his family here. But I think, boy, I'd love to know a little bit more about that guy. And it made me pleased to hear about how well he was respected a century ago. And I I, I look at something like that and I think, all right, um, because of that that newspaper editor's respect for my great-great-grandfather... I imagine that if I mentioned that if I was one of his descendants to an editor like that, that that would probably be impressive if he would take the time to uh, write that sort of thing out. But when you look at things like that, even though that sort of stuff would impress me, it apparently does not impress God. Based on what Paul says here in these verses, that's not something that impresses God. Our new birth through Jesus Christ matters much more to God than our earthly pedigree. So the Apostle Paul, at one point in his life, he was quite proud of his pedigree, right? But he also came to to learn that claiming to be a natural descendant of the nation of Israel was not sufficient. It might bless you with a fascinating family history, but it doesn't secure you a place in God's eternal kingdom. And many people of the nation of Israel at the time were banking on the fact that since God had made, had made great promises to Abraham, specifically regarding the ways he was going to bless his offspring, that they were in good standing with God because they were Abraham's descendants. But when you read through Genesis 25 in particular, you could see that Abraham had lots of descendants, right? And being his natural descendant did not automatically guarantee spiritual blessing. In fact, some of his descendants lived in constant conflict and constant opposition to some of the other descendants. It was only the descendants who believed in the one that Abraham believed in who would ultimately experience new life, who would ultimately experience the spiritual blessings that Abraham was promised. Consider what Jesus said about this very thing when he was speaking to those who had more faith in their ancestry than they did in their Messiah. In fact, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 9, Jesus said, And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. 
That would be a very antagonizing and insulting statement to somebody you know, who at that point is counting on the fact that they have good standing in God's sight because they are a natural descendant of Abraham. And then you have Jesus who created Abraham standing in front of them and saying, don't you realize that from the very stones of this earth that God has the power to raise up children for Abraham? You're counting on your natural lineage, but your natural lineage doesn't impress the one who created humanity. He cares more about our spiritual birth than our natural lineage. So we're being told in these passages that becoming a child of God is a spiritual experience. And now Paul's about to uh, elaborate on that even further. And while we all have the privilege of having been created by God, we can only become part of God's family through Jesus Christ, who was the promised offspring that Abraham was told about. And if you trust in Jesus Christ, you become part of God's spiritual family. Not just a natural human being, but one who has a spiritual birth that's inaugurated through faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul elaborates now on this, and he gets very theological in some of the things that he speaks about here. And this is the portion where a lot of people look at, and there's denominations and theological camps and all sorts of groups that have sprung up to debate some of the things spoken of here in uh, verse 9 and following. But here, one of the things the Apostle Paul makes very clear is that salvation is a calling of God, not a reward. Think about that for just a second. It's a calling, not a reward. Look at what he says in verse 9 and some of the verses following that. He says, For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now think about those statements for just a second. Fascinating things that the Apostle Paul reveals as the Holy Spirit gives him these words to pen down. Generally speaking, in life, you and I and everyone we know, we're motivated by rewards, correct? We're motivated by rewards. I'm friends with somebody right now who is collecting, I think it's, is McDonald's doing one of those Monopoly game things right now? Or something like that. I I know she keeps posting online how she's trying to collect all the pieces because she wants to win something big, right? And I thought it was the McDonald's Monopoly. I I have an affinity for another fast food restaurant, so I I don't tend to frequent McDonald's. Um, but she's like, I I want the reward. I want the big prize. I think we're motivated by reward, right? A reward is something that's typically given in recognition for an effort or an accomplishment, right? So when you're given a reward, you're rewarded for your effort or you're rewarded for an accomplishment. So when I hire someone to work on my house or work on my car, I reward them with money. Here's money. Thank you for fixing the thing that was broken. I needed your skill. I reward you with money, right? When my sons shovel neighborhood driveways, what are, what, what what do my neighbors reward them with? Cash. We actually even have one neighbor who rewards them. I just found this out with orange soda and potato chips. Always. The, the, the boys have told me they're like, for like always, he always has orange soda and potato chips. And I think, and the, I thought that the guy goes the extra effort. He's like, listen, you guys need to carb and sugar up here because there's a lot of snow that needs to be removed. You know? So it's a reward, right? Um, but salvation doesn't work like employment. Salvation doesn't work that way. It's a calling of God, not a reward for our efforts. And in this passage, you have the Apostle Paul helping us to understand the deeper nature of how we come to be the recipients of God's gift of eternal life. He tells us here that salvation is something we're called to. So if you know Jesus Christ, you were called into that relationship. The fact that I know Jesus Christ is a reflection of the fact that God called me. It's a calling, not a reward. It doesn't hinge on whether we've done something good or bad. Any one of us that have received the gift of God's salvation cannot point to something in our background or something in our heritage that somehow caused us to deserve it. None of us deserved it. 
It's not hinged on or, or tied to whether we did something good or bad. The, the, the level of human acceptance that you and I have experienced from other people in our day-to-day lives, yeah, that does tend to hinge on whether we do something good or bad. But that's why it's so hard for us to wrap our minds around the gift of salvation that God supplies, because it's so different from what we're used to experiencing in other spheres of life. It doesn't hinge on us having earned it. It doesn't hinge on us having deserved it. And that was true before we were given that gift, and it's also true after we've received the gift, which is likewise puzzling, but it doesn't hinge on us having earned it. It's a matter of grace, and it's all tied to His divine purposes. Now, admittedly, this is one of those concepts that we as believers, we struggle to understand, particularly if we tend to place a higher value on our response to God's offer than we place on His plans and His purposes. But plainly stated, this is what's being said here, that God calls people unto Himself regardless of their heritage, regardless of their efforts, and we would never have responded to that calling if He hadn't first opened up our eyes to see our need for salvation. He gets all the credit. We get none of the credit. Salvation is from God from start to finish. He gets 100% of the credit for our salvation. Salvation is a calling, not a reward. And there's one other thing that this portion of Scripture brings out, and this is where I want us to finish today, and that's this. Salvation is dependent on God's mercy, not on man's will. Look at verse 14 and the verses following it. Paul says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I, may sh- that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So again here, as this section concludes, you have the Apostle Paul sharing another dose of what I consider hard truth, but accurate truth of what's going on behind uh, the, the veil of our salvation. He anticipated, as he's teaching these things, he's thinking, you know, he's thinking, all right, what, what will, how will people respond to some of this information? So he anticipates that some people might actually say that God isn't fair because some people experience salvation and some people don't. So he thought some people are probably going to say, well, that means God's not fair because why would some people experience it and why would others not. But again, I think our concept of fairness is often flawed, and it tends to be a bit works-based when you think about it, just like our perspective toward reward can be flawed and is often very much works-based. And here you have the Apostle Paul saying, no, this isn't a matter of being the person that deserved it or earned it or anything like that. He said, salvation operates totally differently from what we're used to receiving or thinking about on a daily basis. By human standards, think about this, if we're going to talk about this idea of God being fair. By human standards, the most fair thing that God could have ever done regarding mankind would have been to cut us off from His blessing and condemn us forever. Because we deserved nothing more than a crushing blow of His judgment. When you go back to our earliest ancestors, when you look at the early chapters of the book of Genesis, and you see God plainly saying, this is what you're supposed to do, this is what it looks like to live in a relationship with me, this is what it looks like to be obedient to me, and here are the consequences if you choose to go your own way. And then mankind goes his own way and rebels against God. And then what have we done ever since then? We blame God for the results of our activity. It's your fault, Lord, that that this is happening in my life. It's your fault that that I deal with this. It's your fault that this adversity has come. It's really my fault. How about I be totally fair and we just go back to that early spot where I said, if you do this, you will experience death. And all the things that lead up to it. And the most fair thing God could have done would have been to say, okay, end of the story. You made your decision. Sorry you made that choice, but didn't I tell you ahead of time? And he could have just said, all right, I will now crush you with my judgment. End of story. Don't argue. I don't need people nagging me. Right? 
He could have said that, and he would have been fair. Would he not have been fair if that's what he decided? But yet, Scripture also tells us that God is the perfection of mercy. His mercy isn't just like a little side attribute that he has. He is the perfection of mercy. And he chose to utilize that aspect of his nature toward us. And what he did was, for those who have accepted his offer of salvation through faith in his Son, he gave us the option here, he gave us the opportunity, I should say, to simply look at him and say, Lord, thank you for showing me mercy. I did not deserve this. I'm an undeserving recipient. Can you imagine standing before God, which we will do. You'll do that, I'll do that someday. We will stand before Him. Can you imagine standing before Him and being so presumptuous as to say, well, obviously, I know why I'm here. You know, I had this coming, so thank you for this reward based on my effort. I deserved it. Shake hands. Let me get you to, I know you got a long line, so let me get out of the way. We don't need to go through the details of my life. I'm the one that deserved it. And what does the Scripture tell us? Scripture says, no, it doesn't work that way. It says, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That's it. We didn't deserve it. We couldn't earn it. The only way we could get it, the only way we could experience eternal life is if God looked at us and said, I could crush you right now. Isn't that what Ivan Drago said in Rocky IV? What's the, what's the line? I'm going to quote it wrong, and I don't want to quote it wrong. I must crush you, right? Is that, is that it? And then in, the, in, the, in Creed II, he, re, he revisits that line, you know? He's going to crush you. And what was his other line to Apollo in uh, Rocky IV? He's like, if he dies, he dies, right? If he dies, he dies. Could you imagine if God looked at us that way? Zero compassion, zero mercy. Looked at you, looked at me, and it's like, yeah, there's John. If he dies, he dies. I'll crush you. Isn't it nice that that's not the case? And then you look at a portion of Scripture like this, and we have to recognize, I think to fully appreciate this portion of Scripture, we have to understand what we actually deserved. To be crushed. There would have been nothing No fault could have been pointed toward God if that's what He chose to do. And yet He looked at you and He looked at me with compassion and with love. And He says, you know, you're an absolute mess. You're going all sorts of directions. You think you know everything and you don't. You listen to your own voice over mine all the time. You think you can see what's up ahead and you can't even see right in front of your face. You thumb your nose toward me, you do whatever you want, and then you complain when you deal with the consequences of your dumb decisions. And yet I still love you. And I'm choosing to show you mercy. You deserve the opposite. But I'm choosing to not give you what you deserve. In fact, I'll take what you deserve so that you can receive mercy. And isn't that why we gather together on Sunday mornings to praise and glorify Jesus Christ? Because what did He do when He came to this earth? He took what we deserved. He took that crushing blow that should have come to us. And He said, no, I'm going to do this for you. Because you have no hope if I don't do this on your behalf. The justice of God still needs to be satisfied. So the Son of God came and satisfied it. Scripture refers to Him as the propitiation for our sins. And that's a fancy way of referring to the fact that He's the one that satisfied the just wrath of God so that we can become objects of the mercy of God instead of living forever as objects of His wrath. So no, we didn't deserve this. It's a gift from start to finish. But I'm grateful that these truths are revealed in God's Word because what is He doing? He's giving our hearts the opportunity to meditate on something that's very meaningful, right? We're meditating on these truths, and what happens when we start meditating on these things? Recognizing the fact that we've been given an undeserved gift, paid for 
with the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. To me, one of the things that it does for me, and I hope it does this for you as well, is it brings comfort to my heart. To know that God would do this for me, this comforts me. Because I know me well enough to know that I don't deserve it. And so it comforts me to know that God wanted to show me this mercy. I feel comforted in that knowledge. I also feel grateful. I'm grateful that Jesus Christ did the work necessary for my sin to be atoned for because I couldn't do it. Even the greatest good that I could conjure up would never compare to the righteousness of Christ. So He did all the work that was necessary for me because I couldn't do it. He said, I already did the work for you. So much of our lives, don't we spend so much of our lives striving to just try and please somebody? And again, you look at what the Scripture says, and the Lord says He's pleased with His children because He sees the righteousness of Christ within those He's shown mercy to. You know, when He looks at you, when He looks at me, if we know Christ, He sees His Son, right? Jesus did the work necessary for us. I'm grateful that salvation is a gift because I could have never done enough to earn it. I'm grateful that what God's doing is anchored to His mercy because if it was anchored to my ability or your ability to be perfectly obedient, I would be doomed. If salvation was not anchored to the mercy of God, like this Scripture makes abundantly clear, we'd be doomed because we do not have the capacity to be perfectly obedient. Praise God that His salvation is anchored to His mercy. And that we're not doomed. That through faith in Christ we're redeemed. Right? And the same offer that Christ has made, generally speaking, is being specifically offered to us today. Again, I don't know the state of your heart. I don't know your walk with the Lord. I don't know your background. But I do know what this Scripture says, and I do believe that it's true. And I do believe that if you're, you're here right now in the hearing of this Scripture, and I look at that as an opportunity for God to show you His mercy, I believe that He is showing us His mercy and giving us the privilege to be able to interact with what His Word actually states. So in a sense, when you look at this, what, what's happening here? The offer that Christ made is being offered specifically to you right now in this context. So again, if you've wrestled with the question, will God accept me even if I really haven't been all that good? I think the Scripture answers that question. The answer to that question is, yes, He will. Because you couldn't earn His acceptance to begin with. It doesn't work that way. If you trust in Christ to save you, please hear me as I say this, because this will be the last thing we say in this context this morning. But if you trust in Christ to save you, His perfect righteousness will be given to you in an instant. And you'll forever be welcomed into the kingdom and the family of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You for the fact that You give us the privilege and the opportunity to be able to look at a portion of Scripture like this today and meditate on these truths. And Father, for those of us that have maybe even long ago received Your offer of salvation, it's wonderful to be reminded of everything You did on our behalf for this salvation to be something that we have the privilege to experience. And Father, You know the hearts of each and every one of us gathered together in this room. You know the hearts of each person who will listen to the recording of this message. You know those that know You and those that reject You. But Father, we're grateful that You're the God who desires to show mercy. We couldn't earn or deserve salvation. Salvation comes down to Your calling. And so, Lord, we pray for those who have not yet received Your Son, Jesus Christ, as their Savior, the One who did the work on their behalf, that today would be the day that they trust in Christ, that they welcome Him into their lives, that they experience the redemption and forgiveness that He offers, and that through faith in Your Son, 
that they would rejoice in this transformation that you've facilitated where they can go from being an object of your wrath to being an object of your mercy. Lord, we're so grateful that you speak about these things in your word. We're so grateful for the privilege that it is to be able to look at the details related to what you're orchestrating behind the scenes. Salvation is a work that you accomplish from start to finish. So Father, we pray that we would continually live grateful lives, knowing that this is the case. But again, Father, we pray that as those who have had the privilege to interact with the teaching of your word, that this wouldn't be information that our minds and our hearts remain hard to. You tell us in this portion of Scripture that Pharaoh was hardened. Lord, in your mercy, we pray that we would not be hardened. We pray that you would soften our hearts and that you would draw us unto yourself through your Son. So thank you for your love. Thank you for demonstrating your love through your Son. Thank you for allowing other leaders to reflect that sacrificial compassion like we see the Apostle Paul speaking about and like we could probably point to other people in our day-to-day lives that have displayed this as well. But again, Lord, we're grateful for the fact that you're willing to accept us whether we've done anything good or bad. It doesn't matter. What really matters is what your Son has done on our behalf. So we thank you for the privilege to know these things. We pray, Lord, that this information would permeate our minds and work its way into our hearts and be borne out into our lives. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Informal Bible Study. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, we'd invite you to stop by our website, which is desirejesus.com. And if you're not on our weekly newsletter list, you can find the link to sign up for the newsletter right there on the front page of the website. But that's it for us today. Thanks again for listening. We hope you have a wonderful day and a wonderful week. And we look forward to catching up with you again right here next Monday. Take care. Are you concerned about tensions in the Middle East? Do you wonder where we're currently at in the biblical timeline? Are we really in the last days? Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Carl Muller with the Inside the Epicenter podcast. Every week, my co-host, best-selling author Joel Rosenberg, and I answer those questions and more. You'll hear inside knowledge of our meetings with leaders at the highest levels of government in the U.S., Israel, and the Middle East equipping you to filter the news with biblically sound insights. Find Inside the Epicenter on your favorite podcast app or go to joshuafun.com to listen and subscribe.